framework of international law was invented by imperialist states and colonizers to serve their own aims and protect their like colonial acquisitions from one another. Um, the Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman with Asa Winstanley. It's the end of the year, and we have a very special episode today. Yeah, we're excited to be joined by our two colleagues, Maureen Murphy and Tamara Nassar, to talk about some of the most important stories of 2021 from inside Palestine and from around the world. So, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. It's a wrap up of the year episode. And it's great to have you both on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, guys. Good to be with you both and Tamara, too. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today, um, but I wanted to start by having Tamara talk about her new story, uh, Israel's cyber warfare industry had a bad year. You write, quote, as more news of its role in human rights abuses surfaces, the company has been hammered with lawsuits from tech giants and U.S. government sanctions. It may even be on the verge of collapse, but that does not mean Israel's state-sponsored cyber warfare and espionage industry would disappear with it. Um, and, and it's such an important story, I think, um, and encapsulates a lot of what's been happening in 2021. Um, Tamara, for our listeners who may not have heard about the NSO group and Israel's surveillance uh, apparatus, can you tell us what it is and the significance of this technology being, as you say, hammered with lawsuits and sanctions, especially by the U.S., one of Israel's greatest supporters? Right. Um, of course. So uh, NSO Group is an Israeli cyber war, uh, cyberware firm uh, that started in 2010, and it was founded by three members of uh, something called Unit 8200. Uh, Unit, Unit 8200 is a high-tech uh, surveillance branch of the Israeli military. It's it's comparable to the NSA. It's like the Amer- it's the Israeli version of the American NSA. And this branch of the Israeli military kind of specializes in spying on Palestinians in order to blackmail them. And there is this pipeline from Unit 8200 to Israel's uh, surveillance industry. A lot of its veterans go on to uh, establish spy firms, uh, uh, private companies that uh, sell this kind of uh, malware. So NSO Group really started making headlines, not really this year, but as early as 2016. It is best known for its signature cyber cyber like malware called Pegasus. And um, Pegasus is really like one of the most sophisticated malwares known in the industry. Uh, at least, the, at least from what we know, it allows those doing the spying to covertly install very sophisticated malware on the device of the targeted user. And once that malware is successfully uh, installed, and of course, this can happen on iPhones, on Androids, um, and other devices, but mostly mobile phones, um, it allows those doing the spying to extract a terrifying amount of data. This includes 
pictures, text messages, emails, passwords, um, you name it. it. It allows those doing the spying to control the device remotely. So turning on the It becomes camera, a weapon against its own user, essentially, totally. doesn't it? Yeah, because huh. they, they can they remotely control it, turn on the microphone, turn on the camera. It, you know, your own phone becomes a spying device against you. A hundred percent. And you're constantly feeding it information because it's supposedly one of the most you know, you said it, you said it best. Earlier versions of Pegasus um, were a bit uh, different. They operated a bit differently. So um, when it was discovered or when, when, when expert analysts first discovered Pegasus back in 2016, um, those who were trying to install Pegasus on a targeted device uh, would require the targeted user to kind of interact with a certain bait that they would send. So for example, um, they would have to send the malware in the shape of a text containing a link, um, and they would design the text in a way that the targeted person would be lured enough to click on the link, and once they click on the link, they would hope that the malware successfully installs on the phone, and then it becomes compromised. Uh, later versions of Pegasus uh, did leave a trace, for example, in the form of a missed call on Skype or WhatsApp, but did not require the user to interact with a link or a text. And now some of the latest versions of Pegasus do not require the targeted user to interact with the malware at all. And it leaves absolutely no trace. It's called this zero click, zero day uh, target. And what that means is that, you know, you would not notice really a significant change on your phone. The malware would be installed quickly and quietly on your phone. Um, without it being uh, immediately knowable that your phone was targeted. And one interesting detail that I haven't seen reported a lot about Pegasus is that it also has the power to self-destruct um, on command. So basically, if, if those doing the spying become aware that the targeted user um, is somehow, you know, starting to become aware that their phone is infected, they can program Pegasus to destroy itself and therefore destroy all the evidence that it was on this targeted device. And it would make it even more difficult for expert analysts to, to find traces of Pegasus on the phone. Um, so one of the earliest uh, cases of Pegasus really infecting a phone, at least uh, earliest known cases um, or targeting a phone, not sure if it was infected actually, uh, was the targeting of this Emirati-based um, opponent, uh, a human rights defender, his name is Ahmed Mansour. Um, he was sent a text basically uh, saying there's, you know, there's new secrets about UAE torturing prisoners. And like he forwarded the text to Citizen Lab, which is uh, a, a research lab in Canada that has done good work uh, and released some really good reports about NSO group technology. Um, yeah, and and over the years, you know, th these kinds of reports have been piling up uh, all kinds of lawsuits and reports accusing NSO group of target uh, NSO groups technology of targeting journalists and human rights defenders and politicians and lawmakers um, have, you know, all 
all sorts of people um, being targeted by NSO group technology. And one of the one of the high profile cases that was reported on was the link between Pegasus and the killing of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi uh, in October 2018 in uh, the Saudi uh, consulate in Istanbul. Um, it was revealed that uh, the phone the phone belonging to his one of his really close friends, activist Omar Abdul Aziz who's a Saudi activist living in Canada and also the phone of his fiance being uh, infected by uh, NSO group. And of course, this, this was starting you know, to stir the pot for NSO group. They started coming up with new human rights policy and a transparency report, trying to basically whitewash their record in human rights abuses. And they started even like appointing new senior advisors to them. And if you look at the list of those people, I mean, it's, it's kind of comical, like it's it's studded with like former Israeli official with records of defending war crimes, not at all the kind of people that you would trust protecting human rights. Um, and of course, this all came with NSO Group's insistence that it exclusively sold its products to governments. And I'll say more about that later because resorting to that defense is, in, is interesting uh, in and of itself. Um, 2021 was particularly newsy for NSO group. Um, it was, you know, um, a lot of reports came out this year about, uh, about NSO groups targeting of, of individuals, um, who, you know, human rights activists, politicians, etc. But one of the biggest stories of the year, uh, really was this joint investigation that was done by Amnesty International, and um, the group uh, Forbidden Stories. Uh, and it revealed, I mean, while it didn't reveal for the first time that those being targeted by NSO were not really, um, were not really to, you know, trying to avert crime or et cetera, it, it, it revealed that the scope as, uh, of, of NSO group was so wide. It was, it was used much more widely than it was ever previously known. And part of the leak was that there were there were fifty thousand phone numbers um, that were on a list of possible targets of NSO technology. Of course, forbidden stories cannot determine if every single one of those phone numbers was actually infected with NS with the NSO group technology, um, because they would need to examine each and every phone, and that's also a very long and difficult process because it requires, in some cases, for the phone to be handed over to a lab, or for you know, for the for the phone to extract a certain report that would be sent to expert analysts, um, and after that, uh, you know, lawsuits and blacklists started piling up. Apple sued NSO Group this fall, um, and it's kind of an interesting lawsuit because Apple wants to permanently ban NSO from ever using its software or devices, um, but. Uh, I think legally it's it's a bit interesting because you know Apple is Apple is suing NSO Group on behalf of its users and for its interests because it wants to protect people supposedly from being hacked uh, by by those uh, by the groups who buy NSO technology. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Apple doesn't really own the phones that have been hacked, and NSO Group is also not the person doing the spying, but the, you know, but the group that is making 
the 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 spyware. So it's it's I, I'm curious to see like what kind of precedent that will set. Um, after that, uh, the U.S. government blacklisted NSO Group along with another Israeli firm called Kandaru, and um, that's also interesting because that's not really it's not really like a form of sanctions because uh, it, it definitely makes it more difficult for American companies and Americans to make business with those groups, uh, but it doesn't make it impossible. It just really moves it to a, a, like an extra level of difficulty. It, you, you, uh, those groups would require like a special license or an authorization to be able to make business with um, NSO group. And um, Almost a month after that came out, after the after the U.S. government really blacklisted NSO Group, uh, Reuters uh, revealed in in a special report where they um, cited some some unnamed sources that nine uh, U.S. State Department officials um, specializing in Uganda or are stationed in Uganda have been targeted by NSO Group technology, and uh, after that. Uh, a group of law of, of U.S. lawmakers, de Democrats, uh, called for sanctions to be uh, to be instilled on NSO Group, and human rights groups are asking the European Union to follow suit and do the same thing. So that's really uh, those are the you know the ma major headlines about NSO Group this year. It's it's still unclear whether this is going to be kind of like the last nail in the coffin of NSO Group. Uh, but what's more interesting than that is even if NSO Group is, uh, Asa, like you say, sued and blacklisted into oblivion, what's more interesting is like what comes after that and what that means for the rest of Israel's uh, cyberware surveillance technology uh, industry. Yeah, what I found, one of the things I found most interesting in this latest article that you've written that Nora mentioned about NSO Group, and you've done a great job this year, as every year of covering this story um, was the detail that it said that um, it mentioned, you mentioned two new Israeli cyber warfare groups and one of them being formed by veterans of NSO itself. So the rats are already deserting the sinking ship. Um, and you can imagine just the exact same things going on again, um, you know, in a different company in a different form. Um, and it also makes you think that, you know, Israel has been doing this kind of stuff for a long time, but it's, you know, this particular company doesn't have a particularly good PR department or um, is not particularly right. good at, at soft, its software being undetected. Yeah, I mean, arguably, it's precisely those reports that at first were very good for NSO Group because it attracted clients like, uh, you know, certain clients would look at these kinds of reports in the beginning and think, wow, NSO Group has technology that can really do something really amazing. But um, I think it was, uh, there was like an overdose at some point and it just became like a sinking ship, like you say. But it's true. I think now that um, NSO Group is really um, struggling to not keeping, not really being able to keep up with the PR as, uh, as it used to, uh, there are definitely other Israeli companies that are, um, waiting to see what would happen and trying to also attract clients from uh, from NSO. And uh, the two companies that you mentioned are, are Quadream and Paragon. 
And like you say, a lot of them are veterans of either NSO group or Unit 8200. So much, I mean, it's all like a cesspool of the same thing. They all come from the same roots and they're essentially trying to do something very similar. And uh, the investors um, are also very interesting. Paragon um, has Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister as one of its investors. Um, and uh, it's it, one, of, one of its selling points is that it's saying that it's not going to sell any of its, any of its products to authoritarian or undemocratic uh, <laughs> governments. Um, and <laughs> of, of course, course, like, so this is like the, the interesting part is that like, the Israeli defense ministry and the Israeli government, I mean, NSO group would not be able to sell its products without the Israeli government, without approval from the defense ministry. Uh, and it would not exist without it either because it's all of its roots come from the Israeli military. Uh, but one way that the Israeli government tries to defend NSO group, especially in recent weeks after the US state, uh, after the uh, reports about the US State Department employees being targeted and about the blacklisting in the US. One thing that the Israeli Defense Ministry uh, uh, did was that it said it was going to tighten controls um, over who gets to buy NSO group technology. And through like having a clearer definition of serious crime and terrorism. And I mean, this is comical because this is like the same Israeli Defense Ministry that considers Palestinian human rights groups to be terrorists. So the definition is all warped up. It just, it's, it doesn't make sense. But yeah. one thing that really interests me, for example, is that it's not really about who this sur surveillance technology is being sold to, but whether such a technology should be able to exist in the first place. I mean, mm. is, is this kind of, it's not the danger of who's holding the gun. It's like, it's the gun itself that's the danger. Yeah. And also the thing I don't buy as well is this hands on sort of hands off plausible deniability thing they have of where they say the Israeli government says and even NSO says sometimes, oh, we don't have we don't have necessarily control over how our products are used um, and it's not us doing it. I mean, I just don't buy that because, you know, these are multi million pound contracts with these um, sort of uh, golf dictatorships and you know oppressive regimes all over the world as well as now we learn um the israeli secret police itself from one of these companies the shin bet um and i just don't buy that they're like handing this software over like it's a uh, an old-fashioned like uh you know cd-rom that they're giving to giving to them that could just be sort of pirated no these these will be like um it'll be a highly sophisticated system of um you know, uh, software that's run on servers on websites that will require continued support by NSO group operatives, um, and uh, at a minimum support, you know, if not actual operation. So I, I just don't buy this whole line that they're they're trying to kind of it's it's, it's a convenient thing basically. Totally, and um, every single sale that is done to any of those you know, countries, if we're going to believe the NSO group claim that it exclusively sells its technology to uh, countries and law enforcement agencies, um, the Israeli Defense Ministry would have to approve every single one of those sales. And so, and this is something that was, you know, almost completely absent from the reports after the, you know, the biggest story of the year when the Forbidden Stories and the Amnesty International report came out. The role of the Israeli government was almost 
yeah. absent and yeah. it was it was being downplayed when in fact, i looked at the guardian right, coverage sometimes of it they didn't even closely. say that it was it, it originated in israel like it was just some yeah yeah the guardian for example nowhere. like barely mentioned it in yeah. their coverage and they weren't really big on the whole story it was just this kind of story of a rogue a rogue uh corporation yeah totally and i and i think it all goes I mean, from from my observation, and if I were to speculate, it feels like um, NSO Group is being portrayed as this uniquely evil corporation, which which produces uniquely evil products in an otherwise benign surveillance surveillance industry. Um, and now it's being kind of like thrown under the bus by by people who are doing you know much of the same thing in order to save the rest of the industry. And yeah, and it, all the root of all this is, of course, Unit Eighty Two Hundred, which seems to be this essentially a training academy for global cyber criminals, and they and spies and spooks and mercenary spies of all sorts. You know, the mm -hmm. same people behind Black Cube, right? Um, that was involved in helping Harvey Weinstein to spy on um, his rape victims and trying to dis to find dirt on them and smear them. In the mm -hmm. public eye and so forth you know there's, there's a, uh, and these are just the ones we know about like how much more of this is going on so to and me, of course all oh go ahead oh no i just wanted to say that um this this recruitment from unit 8200 is not only limited to israel the united arab emirates has a, a spy firm called dark matter which also directly recruits from units 8200 it's kind it's becoming kind of like an international wow. uh uh industry where units 8200 to like spy surveillance industry pipeline <laughs> yeah this i mean this is a real this this is a real sort of intersection of your reporting tomorrow where this kind of the whole uh, israeli cyber criminal industry is intersecting with um, normalization and the um gulf arab dictatorships um increasingly uh, overt i mean just fully overt now ties mm -hmm. and normalization with israel um, and it's it's interesting, like the role that this kind of played and must have played in the kind of um, uh, recruitment of these, for want of a better word, recruitment of these um, monarchies and uh, Gulf dictatorships towards normalization with Israel, because they're sort of saying, we'll see the kind of things we can do for you. You know, and then an example of that is the exporting of these um, oppressive technologies. Totally. Um, I mean, way before any of the Abraham Accords were signed in 2020, uh, some of the earliest reports of covert relations were these kinds of sales. And what the Abraham Accords uh, really did, the Abraham Accords um, are the normalization deals that were signed between Israel and uh, four Arab countries, uh, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and uh, Sudan, brokered by the US. Um, is that they really like made those countries into new markets for Israel's surveillance and war industries. And um, yeah, we can touch more on that later, but it's, it was especially evident after Israel's massacre in Gaza in, in, in May. Of course, the research and development of these weapons, of these surveillance technologies uh, are done on Palestinians. And Maureen, you've written extensively about how Israel's, you know, military, their their weapons industry and their their spy tech industry um, comes from actual field, you know, field testing on Palestinians. Um, and 
you know, uh, um, some of the staff of the six human rights organizations that were designated by Israel as terrorist organizations earlier this year. Um, also, uh, their phones were infected with Pegasus spyware. Can you talk a little bit about this? Uh, yeah, just like this dystopian future that that Palestinians are already living with under Israeli occupation. Uh, sure. So um, it was reported in the Israeli press in October that Israel had designated six prominent um, Palestinian human rights and uh, social services organizations as terrorist groups. So it was Israel's defense ministry that first made that designation. And uh, the targeted groups learned about this designation by reading the Israeli press. So um, that just shows how uh, anti-democratic and how there's just no um, no legitimate process by which uh, Israel outlawed these groups. So um, after the defense ministry made that designation, uh, the military followed suit and used um, possibly no longer applicable emergency laws in the West Bank to outlaw these six same groups which means that the military can um, raid their offices at any time, seize their property, arrest their staff. So it's, it's really serious business. It's basically um, a nuclear option for Israel to shut these groups down. Um, and these groups have persisted in their work, including monitoring and documentation of human rights. So um, these same uh, repressive technologies and weapons that Israel is using against Palestinians. They're documenting how it's being used. Um, and Israel, of course, then goes to arms fairs around the world and um, sells these technologies and repression technologies as uh, field tested. And of course, that means field tested on the bodies of Palestinians. Um, so at least three people um, we know of, and I think there's three other people who have remained uh, anonymous were targeted with NSO spyware on their phones. So um, a, I believe a field worker for Al Haq, which is a human rights organization in Ramallah, uh, Salah Hamouri, who um, is a lawyer for Al Damir um, and who is being, um, Israel is a, attempting to deport him um, from Palestine. Um, and has been embroiled in a legal battle with the state for years now. And um, the director of BSEN, which is a Palestinian uh, think tank, um, maybe that's not the right word, but um, th those three folks have been determined that um, NSO Spyware was detected on their phones um, after an expert review by Amnesty International and, and Citizen Lab. Um, and going back to what Tamara was saying earlier about how um, invasive this Pegasus spyware is, the wife of um, Ubay Abudi, the director of BSAN, described just the sinking feeling um, she experienced after learning that like their most intimate family life was being potentially recorded by uh, the shin bet. So it's like basically like having the shin bet in your bedroom. If you are like most people and like carry your phone around with you everywhere in your house. Um, so yeah, I level... don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I say that 
I try I know, not to right? do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and while this was coming out about the uh, six Palestinian organizations being targeted uh, or being um, blacklisted as terrorist groups by Israel, the Washington Post came out with this big story reporting on um, this uh, biometric database that Israeli soldiers are building um, to like photograph any Palestinian that they interact with, um, especially in Hebron where um, they're like, in, like Palestinians have to like go through checkpoints just to get from one place in the city to another. Um, and so there's a, like a, a lot of like contact between the military and Palestinians living in Hebron. This is the um, new blue wolf thing that was just reported, right? Yeah. So just like sold there, were, they were gamifying it. So soldiers were being rewarded and like units in the army were, were being rewarded for like taking the most numbers of photos of Palestinians, including children to put in this biometric database. So like the level of surveillance in Palestine by Israel is comprehensive. And this Absolute. is like, this is not new. Like when I was living there like 15 years ago, it's like, if someone went to um, the DCO office, which is like the district coordinating officer, the Israeli military's officer, or the military, they, they could like bring up a map of a Palestinian neighborhood and they would have every house, every person living in that house noted. Um, so the, the level of surveillance isn't new because they do this so they can blackmail people if they find out um, compromi compromising information about someone, they'll use that to um, try to get them to cooperate with um, the occupation, or they will um, use information against children to inform uh, for the military about, you know, anything that the military might want to use against to break basically any Palestinian organizing and um, um, resistance to the occupation. But the advancement of the technology is the new thing. So that's, Israel has always right. done this, but it has greater tools to do this now. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the novelty, I guess. So yeah, I mean, when the stuff about uh, Blue Wolf was exposed recently and um, you wrote about that, didn't you Maureen, the, the Blue Wolf uh, article? Um, and it, I think it was published in the Washington Post. Um, it, it's interesting because then you look back, you think about that and you think, huh. And then it, you you see videos that you've already seen online before that um, in a different light. So I, I remember there was one video of um, Israeli soldiers just invading a Palestinian home in the middle of the night and just taking photos of the children. Mm -hmm. And you think, they were probably trying to get these prizes for this blue wolf thing, you know, as they, you know, as you said, they're gamifying it. Absolutely insane stuff. Again, it's not new because yeah, when I was living in the West Bank as well, it was the same very common scenario for Palestinian homes to just be sort of invaded and raided uh, at any time at the whim of the, of the soldiers and the officers in the area. Um, but it's this new sort of insidious level of, um, technology that has really brought the surveillance level to an almost absolute level it seems yeah yeah um and it's like uh ironic isn't even 
I don't think doesn't have the gravity to describe. While Israel has this capability that we all know it uses, it also claims to have not known that uh, the Associated Press had offices right. in a, a tower that it bombed and destroyed in Gaza. Right. So right. you can't you can't have both things at the same time to, <laughs> to claim to not know that Al Jazeera and um, AP were uh, were housed in this building, and and maybe there was like Hamas. Um, they they claimed that that Hamas had like some kind of like like special intelligence unit in the building, but uh, but even then they haven't pr produced any evidence to to back up this claim, and yet we know um, the level of information that they have on uh, everywhere in the West Bank and Gaza. Yeah, they bombed it to the ground because they could at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's going back to what you were just saying, Asa, about these night raids. Part, partly it's to gather information on people, but mainly it's to terrorize them. Yeah. It's right. to remind Palestinians that we're in charge and we can leverage this power over you at any time. And so when Human Rights Watch put out these reports on um, Israel's uh, targeting of towers in Gaza in May, um, and calling them apparent war crimes with unclear military objectives as though there were any when it, like Israeli leaders said themselves that nowhere in Gaza is immune. That's what Benny Gantz, Israel's defense minister said. So th the whole point has been to terrorize people. Then that's been their principal military strategy since Lebanon in 2006. It's called the Dahia Doctrine. And it's to basically terrorize civilians into submission. And that's also the same strategy with the siege on Gaza that's been in place since 2007. And apparently the so-called international community is as happy for that to become as permanent as the occupation itself. Um, so th that's, that's what it comes down to is just breaking Palestinian unity, breaking Palestinian society, and um, crushing any opposition to the occupation and colonization of Palestinian land. Let's talk a little bit more about um, the attacks on Gaza uh, and in the West Bank um, in May of this year. Um, there was, I mean, you know, again, just unmitigated violence by Israel um, supported by its allies. But we also saw this um, cohesion of pan-Palestinian solidarity, you know, Palestinians who have been separated by Israel in, you know, in enclaves in Gaza, in the occupied West Bank, and inside historic Palestine, 48. Um, there, was, there was this kind of unanimous uh, rising up um, against Israeli colonization um, and, and violence. Um, and resistance force, I mean, we covered this in a podcast back in May with Ali and John Elmer, um, you know, who were talking about the, the um, you know, the heightened uh, technologies of Palestinian resistance factions and how Israel actually wasn't able to do things like a full-scale ground invasion because of the capabilities of Palestinian resistance. Um, 
what do you both think of, you know, looking back now, it's, you know, what's been seven months since then. Um, what, what has changed in terms of um, Israel's capabilities? Um, you know, to, to, you know, just to have this unmeet, you know, just unmitigated violence. Um, but what has changed in terms of Palestinian resistance and, and, and the cohesion of Palestinian society, no matter where they're placed or displaced? Tamara, do you want to go first or uh, <laughs> do you have any sure. first thoughts? Um, I mean, looking back at May, I think while we were reporting on it at the time, um, there there were a lot of new things that were happening and it was all very shocking, uh, both in the measure of just the sheer amount of brutality that Israel was unleashing on Gaza but at the same time, at the resilience of the resistance. I think one thing that um, really inspired hope is to see this national unity uh, among Palestinians in the West Bank, in 48, and in Gaza, and in the diaspora, in a way that was, you know, the last time we've seen something like that was in, you know, the Second Intifada. Um, so, and may, maybe it has to do with, you know, how connected everyone, you know, this is like one of the most connected times, um, we have, th there was the internet, there was Instagram, people were sharing everywhere you look, you would see pictures and videos and news and headlines. Um, and I think, you know, this is a thought I had at the time, but it's important to be, moderate in what we expect of the resistance too, because, um, you know, there, there was this, there, there were moments of great pride in knowing that the resistance in Gaza is not going to stand by as Israel raids the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, unleashes, you know, rubber-coated steel bullets and tear gas inside um, the mosque at worshippers there was this like sense of national pride that we have a resistance that that defends us and it doesn't only defend people in Gaza it defends Palestinians wherever it can it can it can reach um so that was really inspiring and I think you know like I said it's just important to be moderate in what we expect of this resistance and I don't think any of those um events can be can can liberate Palestine at once, but I think it definitely taught Israel a lesson that um, that it cannot uh, continue to do those things without being punished by the resistance. And I think you know that was very important. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that it was the first time I can think of really that the as you said, the ability of the resistance in Gaza specifically to act not only in the self-defense of the Gaza Strip, but in self-defense of Palestinians in Jerusalem specifically, uh, but all over Palestine, that it was, um, it's not the first time that that was their stated aim, but it seemed 
to be such a clear expression of uh, defending Jerusalem, the capital of Palestine, um, from the attacks of um, Jewish supremacists, essentially, in Jerusalem, attacking and um, driving out Palestinians, you know, chanting death to Arabs and so forth. Um, in a very narrow way, you might sort of think, well, you know, um, why would they do that? Um, this is just a, this is a, an armed group in Gaza. They should stick to defending Gaza. But, you know, the Palestinian resistance has never seen things that way. They've seen it as um, a, a national defense organization against occupation and um, settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. So it was, yeah, it seemed to me that it was like, it was a real sort of unifying moment for the Palestinian um, body politic in a way, right. the people themselves. Yeah, and I mean, Israel being the sadomasochist that it is, didn't know how to respond to this kind of national unity and power with the resistance, despite them not having the kind of military technology that Israel has. And so it did things like bomb the associated press building and you know, Al Jazeera building. It obliterated entire families in their homes because that's the only language it knows how to speak, which is like punishing the, the weakest people uh, in Gaza in order to uh, try to, like you described Maureen, the Dahi doctrine, try to force them into submission. And still, that was not possible. Yeah, I think it, it points to, you know, so Palestinians in Gaza are never going to achieve like a, a clear and decisive military victory over Israel in like the conventional military sense. But that's not what a resistance and guerrilla, you know, organization is even going to aim to do. Just surviving and like clinging on to your ground is a victory. And when we see headlines like we are this week, I, the AP had a story uh, basically saying, well, it's been 15 years of siege and Hamas isn't going anywhere. So <laughs> Israel is having to learn how to live with Hamas. Um, and the fact that Hamas has been able to develop and improve its uh, capacity of, it, of its armed wing under this um, comprehensive blockade um, is something, I'll, I mean, I agree with Tamara that we should um, speak with, you know, some sobriety about the uh, resistance. Um, like it's not helpful to like, I mean, glorify things necessarily, but um, we can recognize that they were able to develop an arsenal that they said, and Israel seems to believe that they could launch rockets towards Tel Aviv and shut down the country for like for months. I yeah. fully agree with that. And I think at the same time, the other side of that is that um, we should continue to sort of speak out against this. There is this really annoying tendency among some sort of Western leftists of um, sort of saying, oh, well, they're just firecracker rockets out of Gaza. Mm. And, and you know, I, I, yeah, you downplay it. I, I said that at the beginning of that. So I'm going to like uh, own up to that. But <laughs> that was to say that you can't compare Israel's bunker buster bombs to what what Palestinians have. And yet that is what groups like Human Rights Watch do when, when they unequivocally condemn uh, the firing of unguided missiles from Gaza versus Israel's 
you know, high precision guided missiles that they launch into like the middle of like the most densely populated place on the planet. Right. Um, right. But I disrupted um, your thought, Asa, sorry. Um, I was just owning to. Wow, when did you say that? <laughs> I said it on Twitter at some point just to, because, you know, uh, people will say, well, what about Hamas's rockets? What about the rockets? What about the rockets? But the rockets are like the only way that Palestinians under blockade in Gaza have any leverage over, over Israel. Like if like, and what do you want Palestinians to do when, when, you know, people like in the democratic party are against the boycott divestment and sanctions movement. So they're like against any Palestinian form of like uh, unarmed organizi organizing and they condemn that. Yeah. And then Palestinians don't have any right to self-defense using missiles under blockade for you know more than a decade that has like paralyzed life in Gaza. So, I think the best the best response to what about the rockets probably came from Yahya Sinwar in his interview after yeah. the war when he said that okay then well you know give us guided weaponry then right which we don't have you know right. um but at the yeah. same time he made it clear that we're not that. we're not targeting um we're not targeting women and children we're trying to target military targets inside so-called Israel um you know but yeah I mean it, it's a balance I suppose that um we have to be realistic and sober about as Tamara said the capabilities of the resistance um, but that that also includes um, yeah I wasn't I wasn't really including you in this Marie but I do think there is a um, a tendency to kind of from some Western leftists kind of um, discount armed resistance altogether mm. as uh, you know as illegitimate in the first place when it comes to Israel uniquely for some reason um, and also just to say well it it can't win. Which is just historically not true. Like this, it's historically and factually not true. Yes, it's they're not going to win a conventional, overwhelming military battle in the sense of you know columns of Soviet tanks fighting the Nazis. That it's it's not that kind of war. It's a it's a guerrilla war, mm -hmm. um, which which can win simply by surviving, as you said. Exactly. You know? mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And what I when I said, you know, we have to be moderate about what to expect of the resistance, I was really talking about a very specific moment in May during the war when there was this feeling of uh, complete loss at the tragedy that was happening, but then a sense of pride in what the, you know, in what the resistance and how the resistance was responding. And, you know, I, I agree with Maureen, it's a complete marvel that that the resistance was able to not only survive but advance under an Israeli siege where Palestinians and Gaza are monitored 24 seven uh, every you know and, and Gaza is not like the southern Lebanon it's not like filled with mountains where there is like some kind of obscurity with the landscape it's almost completely flat it's That's a it's, good point it's yeah. it's on a coast um, it's completely aerially surveilled and mm. um, from the land. And so to be able to create this kind of sophisticated and like underground infrastructure and to be able to develop this kind of weaponry, which by the way, I don't think 
its intent was ever to really hurt Israeli civilians. I don't think that's the intent and I don't think it's helpful. The, 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 I mean, what it actually does is it, it creates a sense of permanent emergency for Israel that if you continue to terrorize Palestinian lives, we will not sit here and die in silence. And uh, I mean, they they mock you know they they mock the rockets, but at the same time, it's it it has sent the country completely under. Um, it's closed the country completely for a few days. The airports closed, and that's cost Israel millions of dollars for its economy, for its tourism. And most importantly, for its image, the rockets are the most complete form of BDS because the uh, artists and uh, can't fly into the airport. Then <laughs> the two rocket solution. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's Israel has no military solution to the rockets. Like no. it can't, it can't defeat. Like it, you know, it can try to um, bomb like individual rocket units, but like it's never, it's never going to be able to. Um, wipe out um, that capacity of the resistance. And it's proven to not have any solution to the tunnels that are underground in Gaza. There, there was a very interesting analysis um, uh, in the, I think the London Review of Books by A.L. Weitzman um, mm. in the last week or so. And it had a very good title. I think it was called uh, Tunnel Vision, um, something about Israel's military strategy in Gaza. And um, during the, the worst night of the war, um, we saw um, many Palestinians tweeting just with, like they never, in all the, the successive wars that Israel has launched on Gaza, one, you know, the next one worse than the other, people had never experienced um, like the physical sensations of, I think it was, the May the night of May thirteenth, when Israel dropped some, I think four hundred fifty one ton bombs that um, had a delayed detonation, so they would be embedded in the ground and then detonated. So it was like um, created earthquake like effects that could be felt Just within constantly. Israel. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was something that hadn't ever been experienced before. And what um, Israel was trying to do, and um, this was under the um, direction of um, uh, Kohavi, um, who had become famous and renowned for his um, strategy of basically busting through the walls in Nablus's old city um, during the siege in 2003, during the second intifada. Um, his strategy was to, um, what Israel was trying to do on the night of May 13th was um, they made it appear as though they were going to launch a ground invasion. And so they used the foreign press um, to uh, report this. Um, they made it seem like that they had tanks lined up um, along the boundary uh, yeah. in an effort to draw Hamas into like a Hamas's fighters into like a certain concentration in the tunnels and they would target that and the goal was into one swell one fell swoop to basically um like incapacitate the resistance in Gaza and they were very confident it seems that this was going to work and it didn't so at first the Israeli claimed that it had a uh, that that was a major victory but in the months that followed 
there was um, acknowledgement in Israeli press, in the Israeli press at least, that it was actually a major failure because they did not achieve, Hamas did not fall into the trap that they wanted to. So, um, you know, you can look at the situation in Gaza now, it's as bad as it ever was. And that's maybe what I'm saying by like, I, I'm wary of, you know, glorifying, like, especially for people who aren't Palestinians living outside of Palestine to say like, you know, steadfastness and Samud and um, all this, you know, when it like the, everyone in Gaza knows somebody, somebody who's like, um, like the social economic effects and of the siege and Israel's constant punishing of Palestinians in Gaza for refusing to surrender the armed resistance um, has such a profoundly negative impact on people there. I mean, everybody knows somebody who's attempted to, um, you know, go on smuggling boats to Europe. Um, suicide rates are, are really high. Um, and young people just don't see, there's like no future for them on the horizon. Um, so that's what I'm, where I'm coming from when I'm saying like it's, the situation in Gaza is, is so bad. Um, and that's why it's up to people on the outside to organize more effectively so that there is a cost on Israel and to change, to help change as much as we can um, that power equation. So Israel can't keep getting away with this like it does after um, each assault on Gaza. Absolutely. Um, we just have a few minutes left um, and there's so much to talk about as always. We've, we've, it's been quite a year. Um, yeah. We didn't even get into the half of it. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. We have um, so much good journalism on our website. I, yeah. I was looking in preparation for this episode, I was looking at some of my own stories and um, yeah, there's so much that you do that you sort of forget about and you think that actually happened. That's crazy. Um, and I, I think um, one of the things, we probably don't have much time now to talk about it very much, but one of the things I really enjoyed in your reporting this year, Maureen, was the um, the, the whole um, human rights industrial complex, as it were, mm-hmm. um, and your articles criticizing Human Rights Watch and others for their um, coverage of Palestine uh, in a really kind of, I mean, you've alluded to it already in this conversation, really. Um, and uh, maybe, could you talk maybe just a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, after the May War, uh, sometime in August, Human Rights Watch started publishing um, these reports that detailed um, Israel's bombing campaign in Gaza during May. And it, uh, their first report was really harrowing reading because they include testimony from Palestinians that just like, it, 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 was, it was very difficult to read. Um, so I want to acknowledge yeah, that- Yeah, I don't envy you these stories, you know, because they are, I mean, it's traumatic just to read about it, let alone to go through it, you know? Yeah, so I, I mean, so I'm trying to give Human Rights Watch credit where credit is due. Like it's important right. to um, do this documentation, but they're, 
their framework, their analytical framework is just so, um, so narrow. So they treat hem like Hamas, the military wing of Hamas and Israel as though they are equal parties. And while also giving Israel the benefit of the doubt. So as I mentioned earlier, they because Palestinian resistance missiles are unguided because they're under sanction, they don't like have access to like Boeing weapons. Like the United States does not sell precision guided weapons to Hamas, like which is just, it's even absurd to even have to like explain right. this out. <laughs> um, exactly. So, like that's what they have, and because they're unguided, they're inherently indiscriminate, and firing indiscriminate weapons towards civilian population centers is prohibited under international humanitarian law, which is the law of war. So, therefore, Hamas firing weapon uh, these unguided missiles out of Gaza by this logic um, means that that's an inherent war crime. Meanwhile. Israel launching it's like 155 millimeter artillery shells into like the most densely populated place or one of them on the planet um, does not um, for whatever reason um, fall into the same category as like inherently indiscriminate um, nor does its bunker buster missiles like dropped on El Wahde Street in Gaza City which I just don't understand how that logic wouldn't apply. Um, so there's an inherent bias towards states in international law. And if you dig into the history of it, um, the whole framework of international law was invented by imperialist states and colonizers to serve their own aims and protect their like colonial acquisitions from one another. Um, and it's evolved and changed over time. And now we're kind of in like the counter terror um, uh, the law episode. was to protect the rights of um, Britain against France or France against Portugal, right? It wasn't to protect the rights of the indigenous people that they were colonizing and dispossessing. Exactly. So um, that's the legacy of uh, international law serving uh, to basically consolidate imperial interests um, that uh, like I think human, groups like Human Rights Watch need to um, think more critically about because they're perpetuating this by um, giving Israel the benefit of the doubt, um, not calling for um, sanctions on arms trade to Israel, uh, which they still call like security assistance. So if, if they were like morally consistent on this, they would be calling for like increased security assistance um, to Palestinians in Gaza by like saying that if if they don't like um, unguided missiles being fired at, um, then we then give them precision guided missiles. It's like they have the right to defend themselves. They have the right to self defense. Um, Israel as a colonizing power does not have that right. There's it's like a an illogical uh, thing to say that Israel as the colonizer is acting out of self-defense when it's bombarding Gaza. So um, I, I hope through writing about this that people think more critically about like the human rights paradigm in, in Palestine um, and how it can be used um, 
to criminalize resistance against uh, a foreign colonizer, like, which is, you know, the story of resistance in Gaza. And uh, finally, let's let's look ahead to 2022. I mean, pandemic is going, we're going into the third year of this pandemic. Um, there's still vast medical apartheid happening in Palestine along with regular old political apartheid. Um, Tamara, what, um, what, can, what do you think we can expect in terms of you know, the humanitarian situation in Palestine amidst this pandemic um, and, and as Palestinians continue to fight for liberation? Um, I think that's a really massive question. Um, <laughs> and you have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. And unfortunately, I think that I tend to think things always get worse. Um, I wish I have a better answer than that, but <laughs> it just feels like, you know, when the pandemic started, um, there was this brief moment when it felt like at least we were all in this together. Um, we were on the brink of something really massive and it was difficult to understand what to expect. And of course the pandemic kind of exacerbated all the already existing injustice in the world. And so this, uh, everything just became clearer and even worse. Um, but in, you know, first this tragedy then as far as in like 2021 was all about the vaccine inequality. And uh, it, it started to feel like more divided with COVID with people, uh, you know, trying their best uh, to move forward and away from this pandemic and, you know, vaccine inequality and people who refuse to take the vaccine and et cetera. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to make a prediction or to speculate. I try to, I try not to. Uh, and it's also hard to be hopeful. Uh, but we have to just keep doing the work that we're already doing. And I think that's really all we can do. And Maureen. Well, I'm very curious to see what happens with the uh, case of Palestine at the International Criminal Court. Um, so going back to what I was saying earlier about um, uh, international law being something that can be used um, basically, or the bias towards state against like a, uh, like guerrilla resistance. Um, so, so far, the new chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, um, he's, so just to go back a little bit, in March of last, of this year, still 2021, <laughs> for a few more days, uh, in March of this year, uh, Fatu Ben Souda, the chief prosecutor at the time, um, opened a formal investigation into war crimes in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And that concluded a five-year preliminary investigation, which on top of that was on top of another preliminary investigation. So like the, it's been a very long uh, and prolonged process with the ICC. Um, whether Kareem Khan, the new chief prosecutor of the ICC, um, who took Ben Suda's place after her term expired in June, actually pursues Palestine, 
that's the big question. Um, I, you know, seeing is, is believing um, is how I'm feeling about that. Um, it, it, it's the case of Palestine at the ICC is basically um, a legitimacy test for the court, which has thus far only prosecuted African nationals. Um, and Palestine is um, a lot of the main funders of the ICC. So like Canada and European states are against an ICC investigation in, in Palestine. So it's uh, a test of the independence of the court. Um, I, I think Palestine could be the thing that makes or breaks it. Um, so I'm very curious to see what happens. We could, it, it could be, to going back to what I was saying earlier about the bias um, in international law towards states, it could be, and other people have, who know more about international law and pay attention to the ICC um, very closely, um, have said that it could very well be that the ICC goes after only the lowest hanging fruit, which would be like Hamas and Gaza. Um, so I, I, whether that's gonna be the case, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of because Israel's settlement enterprise in the West Bank is such a open and shut case of um, the violation of international law. And it's obviously approved by like the top levels of the Israeli government. I mean, it's the whole modus operandi of the state. It's why it exists to expand its uh, territory in Palestine. But uh, so that's something um, I'm going to be paying attention to. So far, Kareem Khan hasn't um, said anything publicly about Israel's targeting and blacklisting the Palestinian human rights groups that the ICC works with very closely and which has provided evidence to the ICC. Um, and the situation is such that with the blacklisting of these human rights groups, Israel can raid their offices and potentially um, gather information and endanger Palestinian witnesses who have testified to these groups uh, for the ICC's case. So uh, to me, it's uh, like scandalous that the ICC hasn't said anything publicly about this yet. Um, and to kind of tie in this to the NSO group, um, which was the thing that we started off this conversation about. I forgot to mention that um, there was reporting in the Israeli press um, by Ronan Bergman, who seems very, very close and well-connected to Israel's uh, intelligence agencies, that um, the fact that Israel designated these six groups as terrorist organizations was to retroactively justify the use of Pegasus spyware against these organizations. Um, so that's why the timing happened the way it did. Um, that so speaks to my point about the, the, you know, the connections, the deep and intimate connections between these mercenary cyber criminals and the Israeli state itself. Yeah, I would question whether there isn't there is a line like this exactly. is probably just a state agency, and it's a that's what. Yeah. It's that's what's being uh, questioned in the Israeli press to the extent that gag orders uh, don't prevent them from doing so. Yeah, which is why it's totally comical that their only line of defense is how can we use these products more ethically, which, you know, it's it's just, <laughs> right. 
Oh, sorry about that. We promised to do better. Yeah, but it yeah. but it doesn't speak to like the inherently unethical nature of the products themselves. Right. They, they just simply mm. should not exist. It's it's yeah. I, I find the conversation very similar to the gun rights conversation, which is it's not really, you know, it's 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 not really who's holding the gun. It's just the gun itself is what creates the danger to begin with. Yeah. Well, <laughs> with that, thank you, uh, all of you, um, for the work that you've done this year and continue to do. And, and I know that the Electronic Intifada will remain strong and vibrant and as vital as ever going into 2022 and beyond. Um, and uh, if you haven't made your year-end donation to the Electronic Intifada yet, please go now to electronicintifada.net. We appreciate your support. We are 100% funded by our readers and listeners, and um, we can't do this work without you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, don't forget to like and subscribe. I never say that anymore, <laughs> but I should. Sorry. <laughs> Seriously, do like and subscribe. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maureen Murphy, our senior editor, Tamara Nassar, associate editor, uh, Asa Wynn Stanley, and I um, thank you as as well. And um, thank you, Nora. Let's let's yeah, do this you. again next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Happy yeah. New Year. Yeah, happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> you too. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.